Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 198. The Great Heathen Army Begins. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And this week, BHP co-producer Z and I launched our very first Shop Talk episode where we discuss our editorial decisions, give you things that get left on the cutting room floor, and chat about why the Vikings might have had a real reason to fear battle cattle. Here's a sample. The fact of the matter is, is that the way battle works is an evolutionary process. You go and you see what your opponent is doing, and you try and find a way to one-up that. It's why the Picts were fighting with cavalry, and they were fighting with chariots. But all of a sudden, that just stopped on a dime. And even after Rome withdrew, you don't see that continuing. And the reason why is because the shield wall is devastatingly effective against cavalry charges. But cattle are fundamentally different in that they're food animals. So you don't have the sort of investment that you do with training a horse. Yeah. Losing a, a cow, losing a steer, you're going to eat it anyway. Um, you might lose a couple years off of that animal that you would have otherwise had of usefulness. But if you're staring down a Viking or raid... Right? Or just the Mercians or whoever. I would take it. Yeah. like It's not like they, they weren't facing off with, with shield walls only from the Vikings. These things were all over the place with within Northern Europe. And there's no training that necessarily needs to happen. You're working off the natural instincts of the animal, which is to charge and to bully something out of an area. Yeah. It's entirely possible that there were battle cattle. If you want to hear more and would also like to support the show, you can sign up for membership over at the British History Podcast.com for about the price of a decent pint per month or two cheap ones. I'll let you decide. And thank you very much to Amanda, Sasha, and Francis for becoming members already. In 864 or 865, a great Scandinavian fleet of dragon ships or Drakars, beached themselves at Thanet in Kent. For the people of the South, this would have been terrifying. It had been scarcely more than a decade since the last fleet of Drakars landed in Thanet, and the army that exploded forth from those ships went on to raid Canterbury, London, and may have even taken Winchester had they not been stopped by King Athelwulf and Athelbald. And here they were again. But now, King Athelwulf was dead, as was his son, Athelbald. All of the south was in threat. Where would the Vikings go this time? Would they strike Canterbury again? Loot the treasure chest of the south, London? Unless something was done, everyone was vulnerable. The nobility likely under King Athelbert's leadership, tried to head off the disaster and sent emissaries to the Vikinger army. These emissaries promised vast sums of money in exchange for peace. This tribute would become known as the Dane Geld, the Dane payment. And it was exactly what it sounds like, a bribe for peace. The hope being that if they could just give the opportunistic raiders what they were after, namely material wealth, then they might stay in their camp. Why risk your life if you can get paid for sitting on the beach? But there were two problems with the Dangeld. The first problem was one of simple economics. The South was no stranger to trouble. They had suffered numerous raids over the years, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. 
But even victorious battles have a cost, and these raids were straining the southern economy. In fact, shortly after the last great fleet landed in Thanet in 851, coin production halted entirely. And then suddenly, Athelstan, the crown prince and previous ruler of Kent, vanished. We don't know exactly what happened there, but the interruption and sudden disappearance of the crown prince is suspect. While the chroniclers are quick to laud the royal family's military successes at places like Aklea, which was described as the greatest slaughter of a heathen army ever seen, and also the naval successes in battles like Sandwich, this sudden quiet in the record suggests that there were significant troubles underlying the story. And Wessex and its subkingdom of Kent were getting stretched thin. Wessex may have been outmatched by their Scandinavian enemies. We see evidence of a weakening kingdom through the distribution of coins in the south. In the last 18 months of King Athelwolf's reign, you'll remember that he was the king who defeated the prior great fleet, and he was also Alfred the Great's father. Well, in the last 18 months of his reign, suddenly West Saxon coinage began to be revived. And that increased production continued. By the time we reached the 860s, when the second great fleet landed, Coin minting had expanded even farther. At the same time, we see Wessex's northern neighbor, Mercia, go through a similar expansion of money production. And Mercia at this point was being ruled by King Burgred and Athelswith, who was Alfred's sister and Athelwolf's daughter. So the takeaway here is that shortly before this great fleet landed, we've seen the two major kingdoms of the south, who were linked by marriage, expand their production of coins and do so noticeably. Why would they do that? The answer is complex. Now, it would be easy to think that the wealth of the upper classes in the South was simply growing, and there is good reason to guess that. While these raids were a catastrophic event for any locals who were caught up in them, the upper classes were quick to find ways to exploit the situation and expand their own wealth and standing. Lands were being acquired. Wealth was being consolidated. It's the same old story. You'll always find unscrupulous people looking to turn a national crisis into a personal advantage, even if it's just in the short term. And this explosion of coin production could be a reflection of that, especially since the coins would both enhance the personal wealth of the monarch who was striking them, since he would keep a cut of the precious metals, and also further his prestige because these coins would bear his name. But if you look closely at these coins, you'll realize that they're telling a different story. While there were more coins being struck, the coins themselves were increasingly debased, meaning that cheap metals were being mixed into the precious metals that the coins drew their value from. This suggests that the economy might have been in a great deal of trouble. The production of such a large number of debased coins may have been an indication that the South was dealing with rapid inflation. And the Vikingers were many things opportunistic, ruthless, violent, but they were rarely naive. These people were professional raiders at this point. They did this full time, and they had a great deal of success at it. They were also worldly, and often conducted a side business of trading. After all, what else are you going to do with all that loot? Do you really think that they would be unable to recognize a cheap, debased, and practically counterfeit coin? 
So that's problem number one with the Kentish grand plan of a Dane guild. How effective is a bribe if the silver coins you're delivering are mostly tin? The second problem was that they were Vikings. This wasn't a clash of kingdoms. We don't have a king in charge of the Viking army. The primary qualifier for leadership among a Viking or crew was your ability to bring success and treasure to your followers. There wasn't the form of unified leadership that we see in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. There wasn't even a unified culture. These ships were often multicultural and crewed by people from all over the known world. And they were brought together by one critical quality that they all had in common. The desire for wealth and a flexible sense of morality on how to acquire it. With that in mind, even if the captains that the emissaries swore peace with were good to their word, would that really matter for the other captains? Hell, would those promises even matter for their crews? Think about it. If you were a captain, and you took payment, and then you told your crew that there wouldn't be any raids this year, what would stop your crew from joining another captain who didn't make that same pledge? What would stop them from overthrowing you for failing to deliver on your only duty? To bring them wealth and glory. You had one job, Canute. This problem was likely exacerbated by the fact that the emissaries almost certainly demanded that the promise be consecrated with some sort of Christian ceremony or a swearing upon a Christian object. And the Scandinavians had shown that they not only understood Christian superstitions, but they were quick to exploit them as the people of Luna had discovered only a few years earlier with that low-rent Trojan horse we talked about in episode 194. If Bjorn Ironsides, son of Lothbrok, was comfortable breaking oaths with these strange southern men, why shouldn't they? Especially when so much money could be made. So the captains took the payment, and they swore peace, and the emissaries rode away, confident in their diplomatic successes. Then, as soon as they were out of sight, plans were drawn up for that year's raids. They had an ideal staging location. Thanet would be difficult for any Anglo-Saxon forces to take. The Vikingers knew this, and they also knew that most of the people who occupied this fertile and wealthy land were farmers. Only a very few were warriors. Granted, those warriors were dangerous to the extreme. Like the Northmen, the Anglo-Saxon warriors devoted their entire lives, starting at the age of eight, to war. They were armed to the teeth. They were armored. They were born and bred to kill. And they would fight to the death for their lord, even if he had already fallen in battle. Woe to any raiding band that underestimated those strange men clad in gold and garnet cloisonne. They were practically Northmen themselves. But the Vikings also knew that these war bands, those that traveled in the Werod, were few in number. If the Viking bands could conduct their raids quickly, or if they could muster numbers great enough to overwhelm them, they could move throughout the south without much danger. They knew that from Thanet, they could reach any number of wealthy monasteries and cities in the south. Canterbury, Rochester, London, even Winchester... The possibilities were endless. Everywhere in the South was in threat. No one was safe. And as night fell, the Vikinger army marched. 
The Chronicle doesn't give us a specific list of towns they struck. But we are told that under the cover of darkness, they, quote, overran all of Kent eastward, end quote. Now, where was King Athelbert when this happened? The Chronicle is silent regarding his involvement. In fact, the Chronicle says nothing about specific targets, what sort of resistance was offered, nor any type of tactic. Instead, this event is discussed like it was a natural disaster. There were raids, and that was it. As you know, these accounts are at least partially royal propaganda supporting the House of Wessex. And the scribes often give us the impression that the family of Alfred the Great were essentially medieval superheroes who were designed specifically to fight Vikings. And as a consequence, we're led to believe that they rarely lost. If, of course, we trust our sources. Which we don't. Scholars almost universally agree that there were more raids than what was recorded. And the vast majority of scholars also agree that what we're being told in the Chronicle and in Asser's writings whitewashes most of the West Saxon losses, underplays other kingdoms, and generally just focuses upon moments where the House of Wessex were out there kicking ass and taking names. Given that, let's chat about where King Athelbert might have been. He'd been reigning in Kent for years before he'd inherited the throne of Wessex. So it's reasonable to assume that he continued to spend a great deal of time in Kent, and then his court was largely based there. Further, given the Scandinavian invasion of Thanet and the organization of the Danegeld, it's likely that he would have come to Kent to personally oversee those arrangements. And the seat of power in Kent was Canterbury, which also happened to be one of the richest targets in the south for plunder. Canterbury had numerous churches, which the Vikings would have probably seen as poorly guarded banks. It was an urban trade center, and it even had its own mint. This settlement was wealthy, and if you were a Vikinger and could make only one raid in Kent, Canterbury would probably be it. The only real downside of striking Canterbury would have been its defenses. Being that it was such an obvious target, their defenses would have been bolstered. And the old walls constructed by the Romans were still there, and they were being maintained. In fact, while the Romans had numerous gates that led into the city, the Anglo-Saxons started constructing churches and other buildings directly over those weak spots on the walls so they could better defend against any potential raiders. There were only a handful of entry points into the old civitas. That is, unless you scaled the walls. Now this is where the odd detail that the Chronicle gives us starts to become more interesting. It tells us that they ravaged the east of Kent in the night. Now, if you want to plunder a little undefended village, you don't really need to worry about the hour. And if you're plundering a lot of settlements, that is definitely going to take far more than one evening. No matter how much Red Bull you drink, you just cannot cram that hard. But... If they had their sights set on a single large target, well, that might be able to be done in a single night. And given the defenses of Canterbury, the safest way to attack that town would probably be at night, especially after their guard was dropped because they thought they'd bought peace. So is it possible that Canterbury was the target? I think it is, based on the few bits of evidence we're given. And if King Athelbert was in the area, 
as he almost certainly was, then we have every reason to assume that he would have been in Canterbury. It was his seat of power, after all. And then, the Vikings attacked. I would imagine that, much like in the accounts of other night raids, the army of Northmen would have acted swiftly, with practiced efficiency. But even if they were using the shadows to cut down any watchmen before they could cry for help, eventually, someone would spot them. Someone would sound the alarm. And then all hell would break loose. In a circumstance like that, King Athelbert would have been out there, organizing his hearthwarod, his personal warband, and any other warods that came to his aid. War in this time was personal, and a king was often directly involved in battle. A king was a war leader, especially a king of Wessex. He was a son of Athelwulf, a grandson of Egbert. His father and older brothers had fought and defeated massive Vikinger armies in the past. And now that responsibility had fallen upon him. But curiously, the sources remain absolutely silent on any details other than the mention that the raiders were successful. However, they do give away the game in what comes next. We're told that, shortly after the southeast was plundered in the night, King Athelbert's younger brother, Athelred, took the throne of Wessex and Kent. They don't tell us that King Athelbert had died, though if they did, they might have had to mention the circumstances of his death. And the scribes were often loath to mention any direct failures by Alfred's family. Instead, King Athelbert just vanishes, never to be seen again. Now, is it possible that he wasn't involved in battle at all? Sure. In fact, it's possible that he might have died of heart disease rather than from Olaf the Hairy. It's even possible that he didn't die and was simply deposed by his own nobles who might have been justifiably angry about that whole Danegeld fiasco. I mean, they basically lost twice as much money as they would have otherwise. These are all possibilities. But the timing is really curious. And now, in just over the space of a decade, we've seen King Athelwulf and three of his sons, all kings themselves, die in rapid succession. And with every death, the Vikings just happened to be in the area. It's not proof. We don't have DNA evidence. We haven't found the murder weapon. I'm not saying that it was definitely the Vikings who killed them. What I'm saying is that it's pretty suspect that the glove fits, and then when we went to question them, the Vikings took off in their white Ford Bronco. It seems that the great heathen army may have taken its first victim, and it wouldn't be their last. More ships were arriving, bolstering their numbers, and the presence of these Northmen was an enormous problem for the Anglo-Saxons and one that was not helped by the fact that Alfred wanted a chance to have a say in what came next for Wessex. And we'll talk about what he did next week. But before we end this show, I have one last thing I'd like to share with you. As you know, I try and bring you the latest scholarship from experts as often as I can. And as luck would have it, the experts from the excellent podcast J.M. Miles Explain the X-Men are here in studio, and by studio, I mean dinner table. So, J.M. Miles, right now we're dealing with the great heathen army and the coming of Danelaw. 
As a consequence, our old friend Thor will once again be ruling the British skies. But the thing is that for the last several decades, our understanding of Thor has been heavily influenced by Marvel Comics and, of course, the Marvel films. And my guess is that most people probably assume that the Nordic god of thunder, protection, and fertility had an Aussie accent and abs for days. So guys, I know this is a little out of your wheelhouse, being that the main focus of your podcast is the X-Men, but I was wondering if you might be able to give us a quick primer on how Marvel's Thor differs from the real Thor. Yeah, absolutely. Explaining the X-Men may be our job, but Thor is my other great comics love. So to start with, what you've got to understand about the Marvel versions of the Norse gods is that they're really, really mix and match. Imagine inheriting a box of action figures that you only sort of know from seeing other kids playing with them, and then trying to work out stories based on that frame of reference, and you get a fair idea of the comic's level of fidelity to the mythic versions. Okay, so key differences? Well, first of all, in the Marvel Universe, Thor is basically a title more than an individual. There's the main one, the closest analog to the mythic figure, Thor Odinson, but the name and the power set go with the hammer. Wait, so there's been more than one Thor? Technically, anyone who can lift Mjolnir is, or at least has the potential to be, Thor. So you've got Odinson, but also Jane Foster, who's currently Thor, at least in the comics, Beta Ray Bill, and so forth. Beta Ray Bill? Oh yeah, space alien, kind of horse-looking. He not only could lift the hammer, but he managed to best Odinson in a one-on-one fight to keep it. But instead, Odin ended up ordering him a duplicate called Stormbreaker. Oh, there's also a frog. Yeah, he was a cursed football player who found a fragment of Thor's hammer. Once he proved worthy to lift it, he wielded it as the mighty Frogjolnir. That's definitely a significant deviation from the Prozetta. So if Thor's identity is transitive, what about the rest of the gods? Can anyone become, say, Balder or Sif? Not so much. Not counting the time Loki took over Sif's body. Well, yeah, but he didn't actually become Sif or vice versa. Actually, let's talk about Loki. Is he still a frost giant? He totally is. And Odin's blood brother? Son in the comics. He and Thor are raised as brothers, which relationship and rivalry subsequently fuels a lot of the plot. Okay, I'd love to go through the rest of the pantheon, but I'm not sure we're going to have the time, and I want to make sure we cover the cosmology. So, are there still nine realms? Ten, actually. Well, there were nine, but a couple years ago it turned out that there was a secret tenth realm inhabited by angels. (laughs) Sure, why not? Most of the rest are named after and roughly parallel to their mythic antecedents. Midgard is normal Earth, and it interacts normally with the rest of the universe. And the rest of the realms are basically extra-dimensional, although that varies from reality to reality in the Marvel multiverse. Except for a brief period when Asgard was destroyed and Thor decided to rebuild on Midgard. Whoa, so where did they end up? Floating a few miles above Broxton, Oklahoma. What?! If you'd like to hear more, check out Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else you find podcasts. Or you can go to their website, explainthexmen.com. You won't be disappointed. I listen to them every week. All right. Thanks for listening.